Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Boston voters advanced three Latino city council candidates during Tuesday's preliminary elections. Massachusetts is going against a national trend of approving special driver's licenses for undocumented residents. And does Hispanic Heritage Month need a rebrand? It's Latinx News. Later in the show, to many jazz musicians, Miles Davis was the very embodiment of cool. We felt that that was the one thing that embodied Miles, you know. You know, I mean, Miles, whatever you think of him, you know, he, he go, he's in the running as the coolest guy who ever lived. Now a new documentary, Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, from director Stanley Nelson, is tracing the musical giant's boundary-busting life and career. But first, joining me in the studio, Marcella Garcia, editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Welcome, Marcella. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Always. And from the studios of KUCI in Irvine, California, Adriana Maistas, a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Welcome back, Adriana. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you back. We're going to jump right in with a local story, Adriana. These three uh, Latino candidates who have advanced to the final elections in November. The reason we're talking about it is, believe it or not, there are no Latinos on the city council. There hasn't been one for six years since the brother of one of the district candidates uh, who is up for election in November, and that would be Ricardo Arroyo, was in office. And he stepped down to work for Mayor Walsh and um, hadn't been one since then. But now he stands a good, strong chance, um, I think, uh, Marcella. Yeah. So Felix Arroyo was part of the Mayor Walsh's cabinet. He stepped down and now his brother is running for District 5, which, by the way, is a majority minority with more than 75% people of color in the district. And yet it's never been represented by anything other than a white male Mm. in the city council. And now there was uh, an open seat, even though Ricardo Arroyo actually launched his candidacy as a challenge before the sitting councilor, district councilor, Tim McCarthy announced that he was going to step down. He challenged him. And then Tim McCarthy decided not to run for re-election. I think that he probably saw the writing on the wall that mm. Ricardo's challenge was serious. And rather than get beaten up, he I, I, again, this is just my own right. interpretation, because then he stepped down and now it was an open race and all these people were running. There were eight candidates. Ultimately, Ricardo Arroyo was the top vote getter. Again, a lawyer, a Latino, very, very um, thoughtful and strong on policy. The, uh, the Global Editorial Board endorsed him. And so it's going to be him against uh, this other woman, Maria Pharrell, who is basically like the endorsee of, you know, the, the, the well, unofficial Well, she worked endorsee, for, for Councilman City, uh, yeah, uh, for McCarthy. Tim McCarthy, yes. Right, yes, so it's yeah. going to be the two of them. I um, So that's great news. But on the at-large race, there's four at-large seats, 
eight advanced to the, to the final, and two Latinas had a very strong showing among the eight. Um, one and, is, and I want you to pause right now. One yes. is uh, Alejandra St. Guillaume, and I just want to play a little clip from her victory party after Tuesday's preliminary election. Here it is. Um, she is a favorite, too. Yeah. She, <laughs> Alejandra Sanguillen, I, I knew she was going to do well. She was endorsed, actually, by, by by the mayor, which in a lot of quarters was sort of read as, you know, she was sort of seen as the insider candidate, mm-hmm. whereas Julia Mejia, the other candidate, Latina candidate who advanced, ran sort of like an outsider type of campaign. And but, but both of them had very, very strong numbers. And Alejandra came in fourth in terms of the top uh, vote getters. And there's a very good chance that, I, like you said, it's it's really remarkable and, and, and almost tragic that in a, in a city where one in five Bostonians is Latino, Latinx, there was no Latino in the council currently, district or, or at large. And so now you have potentially three mm. that could become part of the city council, even though probably is going to be two, hopefully. Although I, I've been hearing a lot of concern among Latinos already. It, it's bittersweet, th- this victory, because on the one hand, the strong showing of Latinos shows that Latinos in the city were tired of not being represented at the city council, right? But on the other hand, there's fear that these two Latinas are perhaps going to split the Latino vote. Because a lot of people like me, I were I, I actually just moved to the city a couple of months ago, and I was very excited that for the first time ever I was going to vote in Boston. And so I myself voted for both of them, for Julia and Alejandra. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do in November, mm. but that's going to be the, you know, what people are going to have to consider. And so is, are they going to split the vote? How, you know, what is going to be the strategy of the two of them? Th- those are things that I'm hearing from, from Latinos that are, are already working worry that they're going to cancel each other out and we're going to end up with zero Latinas, which is unfortunate, even though I hate the gamesmanship that sometimes goes into these strategies that people start talking about, why don't you drop out and why don't you know, like I hate that type of of behind the scenes working. So so we'll see. It's it's exciting, but a little bit or so it. We should say that both of them have a pretty strong community profile. Yeah. They may not be known to lots of other folks in the city, but particularly St. Guillaume has been around in various other positions yeah. in government uh, or quasi-government. So that um, she sort of cu- her her constituency cuts across a number of groups. And Julia has just really strong community backing as well. So that it's going to be tough. Um, I will say that from your L.A. perspective, Adriana, <laughs> just want to let you have a, a word on this, because Boston remains one of those cities that has never had a mayor of color and is still, as you hear, struggling around the folks who represent the rest of everybody else on the city council to even have. There's never been a majority of people of color in those roles. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the perspective is out here, at least what I hear from people of color who've lived in Boston, you know, where maybe they've worked or they've gone to college, is that it's a difficult place for people who are not white. And I think that that's just sort of a perception that a lot of us have. And it is unfortunate that in, in a city where nearly one in five residents is Latinx, that, you know, they don't have that representation on the council. 
Yep, but that's about to change somehow, so we'll see. Moving on, let's go to somebody else who uh, is running for office and now on the national front. That's Julian Castro. He got a lot more attention in the most recent uh, Democratic debate, the third one, on September 12th. Here is Julian Castro confronting Joe Biden. Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? So... I raised that because one Carlos Sanchez wrote a piece in Texas Monthly saying why Julian Castro should stay in the presidential race. There are those who are urging him because of his numbers. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Biden are concretizing up at the top in terms of polling. And he has not been able to break some of those numbers. And they were urging him to vote for the Senate race in Texas, which they believe he could easily win because he has a lot of visibility. But this guy is saying, no, lots of folks are really happy that he's there representing and saying some tough stuff. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I I totally agree. And I definitely disagree with the characterization of his comments after that debate that he was ageist and, and, and all of that. I think it was a fair point for him to make. And this is why he should be in the race. I think he Biden should be held to account for for what happened in the uh, in the uh, Obama administration, especially on, on things uh, around immigration, around immigration policy. People forget and it's very frustrating that people forget. People seem to assume or find out that ICE and immigration policy in this country is absolutely horrific. Because of Trump and people seem to forget that things were happening before there was a, an apparatus that was abusive, that, w- that was horrific before Trump came into power. Of course, he weaponized all of those tools, but those tools were there and Obama used them as bad as you know Trump is using it now. Perhaps the scale is different, but Biden should be able to respond to those concerns and having Julian Castro in the race. You know, giving voice to some of these concerns is important. And yeah, his poll numbers are not are not great. Although there was a, a poll that came out last week where I saw him register. Well, he's around one, two percent. I don't know if he's going to go above that, but he definitely needs to stay to the point that we were making before. It's about representation and about bringing some of these issues to the table. Adriana, what do you say? Yeah, I think he should stay just because if at a minimum, he's a symbol for Mexican-Americans and Latinos more broadly when we have one of the most anti-Latino presidents in history. So I think that what he did in taking on Biden at that Houston debate shows that he has a willingness to fight. And he's come out with a bunch of bold, progressive policies, kind of like Marcella said, you know, it's it's a little unfortunate that he's not pulling better and that he's not raising more money. But, you know, he certainly is a symbol for the, for the community. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. But right now he is not uh, responding to people who are urging him to get out of the presidential race and into the Senate ones. Can I say something, though, Mm -hmm. super quick? Adriana mentioned a very important point about his progressive policies that he's put out there. He's led on so many issues. He was the first one who who put out an immigration policy, a comprehensive immigration policy out there. Border control. Yes. He was uh, was there when those kids were first put in the the cages. An issue that's Mm -hmm. very close to my heart, Mm -hmm. animals. You Mm -hmm. know, he 
had a pet policy, a very comprehensive policy for pets in shelters. That was very, very, very impressive <laughs> for me. But anyway, yeah, yeah. He, he's led on very, you know, very strong policies. So, Adriana, you just said that the president was anti-Latino. Well, he would disagree. President Donald Trump was appealing to Latino voters at a rally in New Mexico on September 16th. Here he is. Nobody loves the Hispanics more. What do you like more, the country or the Hispanics? He says, the country, I don't know. I, I, I may have to go for the Hispanics, to be honest with you. We got a lot of Hispanics. We love our Hispanics. Adriana, I'll give you first crack. <laughs> Does that well, impress you? <laughs> not at all. That's it was an absolutely racist thing to say. And clearly the president was implying that Latinos aren't part of the country. Like, you know, it's one or the other. So the interesting thing about that is that that rally was in New Mexico. And New Mexico is one of the states that has been trending blue. It went for Hillary Clinton in the last presidential election. But it's also a state that is sometimes considered in the swing column. So really what Trump needs to do there is he just needs to pull in a certain number of Latino voters. Like he knows that he's probably he's not going to get a majority of them, but he needs to peel off just enough to Mm. put that in his win column. And do you think that's possible? It might be, but my perception is that they're counting on the economy staying strong and mm. that, you know, that there's low unemployment for Latinos right now. And apparently the, there's some data that shows that there's higher median incomes under Trump. But we are, you know, there's also data coming in that we're on shaky economic ground. So I don't know if that is going to hold. Mm. I do think, you know, the GOP in presidential uh, elections with Latinos can sometimes pull as much as 30%. It gets a little different when you're coming into the Southwest. I don't think that he has much support in the community mm-hmm. is my perception from, you know, being in the, in the West. That's my guest, Adriana Maestas. She's a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Marcella, you want to add? Yeah, I, I agree with Adriana. It's intriguing that he's going for New Mexico, but, but I think the calculation that his campaign is making is that if, if he could only appeal to a few he could be all set. I, I also do think that there's more Latino support for Trump than people would always assume. And mm-hmm. and I always say, you know, people shouldn't be surprised about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the communities, it's not monolithic. And, you know, frankly, whites do not have a monopoly on conservatism, you know. And so it does have to do with the economy as well. And some Latinos might just like vote on that rather than all the other horrible things that, you know, that he's done. So, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think their, their calculation is that he just has to do a little outreach and then, you know, that might help him there. OK, I'm coming back to you, Adriana, because in California, for some time now, you all have signed off on special driver's licenses for undocumented residents. That's something that's a struggle here in uh, Massachusetts. And it's once again an issue that's being brought before the state house or our state house. And I wanted to know before Marcella weighed in, what has been the experience in California? Because, of course, what we hear now are all the horror stories of what all the bad things that can happen. It's a special limited driver's license, by the way, so people should understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, in California, it was AB 60 and it was signed by the previous governor, Governor Jerry Brown, and it went into effect in 2015. So the data shows that by 2017, there were a little over 900,000 people without legal status status had obtained a license under AB 60. It's a revenue generator for the state because people are paying to get that license. They're also buying insurance. So the insurance companies stand to make money off of it. 
And then there was a study that showed that there was a slight decrease in hit and run incidences. So, you know, you have people, they're already in our communities. We can't pretend that they're going away or that they're not going to drive. It just happens that when they get into some sort of an accident, they're going to stop and exchange insurance information like the rest of us would. And um, Marcella, just to emphasize, because I can hear people listening to this going, but why should they get a chance to have a regular ID? It's not a regular ID. It is restricted to the driving period. And and it says so on the card. Go ahead. I mean... Callie, you know, I've been covering this yes. issue for a long time. And I actually, the last time we wrote an editorial on this a few weeks ago and then earlier in the summer, I went and look, this issue has come up for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Since 2001, was, 2001 was the first time this issue came up in the legislature. And yet we remain unable to pass this sensible measure. People attach all this ideas about the license. The truth is that the license exists for one purpose only, to prove that you know the rules of the road and that you are licensed by the state to drive. That banks, that other branches of governments use a license as a form of ID, that has nothing to do with the RMV. It has nothing to do with why the RMV gives you the license. It's because you're trained and it says that you are allowed to drive on these roads and that you know the rules. And so logically, you know, we want people that are licensed and trained for public safety purposes. And again, people bring all sorts of like, well, but what about fraud? What about this? And and that just frankly, you know, shows that people are assuming that immigrants or that are undocumented immigrants are here to commit crimes and are here to take advantage of of whatever. This license would not give you access to any form of public benefit at all. It only shows that you are able to drive. And yes, to your point is it varies from state to state, but most states I've done is do it on a tier system. You basically have a tier system of, of licenses, like the one in California, the one here in Massachusetts will be separate from another license that most people get, the Real ID one, which obviously has some federal requirements for you to board a plane or going to a federal building or whatever. This license... Or use it to vote. Well... You can't use it to vote. Yeah. That's, what, that's my point. Right, right. Yeah, so, exactly. So, so, the re, so the license that we know, you can you can use for other purposes, yeah. as we've described. Yeah. But, but this, this license, one, you cannot. And it yeah. would actually say, just like the, yes. one, the AB60 in California, it would say there, it would display, you know, not for any other purposes or whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's a very narrow thing. You just are going to allow people to get trained and mm-hmm. licensed to be on the roads. And what Adriana said is very important, too. It's it's a revenue generator. And yeah. two, it's, you know, for insurance purposes as well. Well, a lot of the activists here in, in Massachusetts have been making the point, which was made in other states like California, because Adriana referred to some of the safety statistics that it's a safety thing. Sure. So you have to, part of getting the license, the restricted license, is that you have to undergo driver's ed. And so now what you have are people on the road with no driver's ed. And yep. so you're putting everybody else on the road Absolutely. at risk instead Absolutely. of dealing with what the reality is. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with contributors Marcella Garcia and Adriana Maestas. We're discussing the Latinx stories you need to know. Gotta have this conversation with you about the Hispanic Heritage Month and whether or not it needs a rebrand. Just from my Black History Month perspective, this comes up every year. People are like, why do we have this? Why is it not working? Why is it? It should be, but it's not working like this. So now there seems to be a lot of discussion recently about whether Hispanic Heritage Month, which we're in now, is something that is valuable. So where do you two stand on it, Adriana? 
I've written about this before, but my perspective is that I think we kind of need to decolonize it and constructively criticize it. So the weird thing about it is it begins on September 15th and it goes to through, I guess, October 15th. Mm-hmm. And the reason that those days were selected is it has to do with a bunch of independence days in Latin America and, you know, that fall around the mid point of September. So basically, over the past several years, and we've had people there, they're questioning the term Hispanic. Like, first of all, like, why is it still called Hispanic Heritage Month? You know, when so many people now use Latinx, Latino, Latina. And then there's also the issue that it erases indigenous and African identity. So, you know, it's an umbrella term. Um, A lot of people who fall under this, you know, have to varying degrees, indigenous and African identity and heritage as well. So what, you know, calling it Hispanic Heritage Month basically gives us all a Spanish father. Mm. For me, I I try to be mindful that not everybody wants to be called Hispanic. I try to get more specific when I can and when people ask me to and they say, you know, I, I don't prefer to be called Hispanic. I don't want to be called Latinx. You know, can you please just, you know, refer to me as Salvadoran or Dominican or, or Chicano or whatever. So I, I feel that some of these, the recent pieces that have come out, you know, raise a good point that we need to question these labels and be mindful of our differences and also look at really who benefits mm. from being called mm. Hispanic mm. or Latinx. And a lot of times it's it's somebody who's lighter skinned. That's just sort of the way it's played out. All right, Marcella. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all of that. It's always very conflicting because, you know, for me, it's always a reminder of my country, even though it's a much broader term. I I always, you know, you see it everywhere and you have like weird feelings about it because you don't like the appropriation and and the fact that, like Adriana said, people who's benefiting. But at the same time, it does like mean something, you know, to be reminded of the country, you know, that you're coming from. So it's it's always it's, it's always very you know, it, it always brings up very conflicting um, sentiments in me. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. But, but in, I, I guess on a, on a very, on a very basic level, I totally agree that that it definitely needs a rebrand. We always talk about it every year. I, you know, I wish it was every single day where we would be sort of recognizing, um, you know, the heritage of so many groups within the, the Latinx community. Uh, but. It, it it's just kind of bizarre that you know arbitrarily well not arbitrarily but it's like this month right mm-hmm, that coincides mm-hmm. precisely with independence um, uh, from from all these you know of all these countries yeah you know, in many cases from Spain <laughs> yeah so right it's it's just so it's it's weird it, it brings conflicting um, feelings uh, but, yeah because you have an opportunity also to right. you know uh, appreciate culturally and. Um, and raise the visibility about so many other issues yeah, and, you know, and, under the umbrella. Right. So, and yet, yeah. and yet, you know, yeah, why do we need that to, yeah. to, to yeah. recognize yeah. it, right? Yeah. So anyway, I I don't know what the answer is. Like what would we rebrand it to or or what will we change it to? Mm. Um, does it make sense to have, you know, all these other ethnicities within, you know, the Latinx community, you know, being separate and, and or, or with you know, recognize them individually? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Well, somebody that uh, should be recognized right now um, is a a new member of the class of 2019 of MacArthur Fellows. Her name is Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She lives in your neck of the woods, Adriana, uh, Los Angeles, uh, 
County, California, and um, she won for her project Million Dollar Hoods, which maps the fiscal and human costs of incarceration in Los Angeles County. Um, Here's a little bit of what she has to say about her her interest. I developed with community members a project called Million Dollar Hoods. We map the fiscal and the human cost of mass incarceration here in Los Angeles and in fact across the state of California. We demonstrate that in certain communities, authorities are spending more than a million dollars per year locking up local residents. And the two leading charges is drug possession and DUI, substance abuse related charges. You know, it's so hard to be recognized by this anonymous group, and it's such an honor. Um, And I just, while we're in Hispanic Heritage Month, and this just got announced, uh, to just raise her up because she um, um, just won. Uh, and and, um, uh, won a a great prestigious award, the MacArthur Fellowship Genius Awards. Adriana, had you heard of her out your way? I I have, and I've read a little bit of her work. she is a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. So what's sort of interesting about her is she studied um, migration and deportation. Um, she's also really studied trying to she tries to make that connection between mass incarceration and the deportation policies. Hmm. So um, she uh, has basically said that a lot of what's happening under Trump is a continuation of what had been happening decades earlier, even with like Operation Wetback, which was a uh, deportation program that began in um, in the 1950s. Um, but the other thing that I think is sort of interesting about her is she does research in Mexico. She visits the archives and she's really looking at um, how the U.S. built such a big incarceration and detention system. Wow. So that's where I find her compelling. Um, and other than that, I don't know too much about her. I think I read somewhere that she was born in the Midwest and... Um, I think Hernandez might be her married name. I'm not sure. Well, but um, yeah. It's just yeah, so I, interesting I, I, how they find these people. Yeah. 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 yeah I, <sighs> but, you know, I, I do think there's a lot. The point being that, you know, there's a connection between migration and deportation. Mm-hmm. And I think we're starting to see some people make those connections a little more clearly. Even people in the Black Lives Matter movement bring that up. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, the connection between yeah migration, deportation, and incarceration, and how it's all just, it, it all comes together. So her um, work is so quite I, current. I find, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Marcella, had you heard of her? Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. And I agree that the mm-hmm. areas of her areas of research are, are, are very much, you know, on point to what we are, you know, um, looking at right now. And... Um, yeah, it's it's a very compelling area. Hmm. I I do kind of always wonder how these nominations work. Is that is this a nomination? It's, no, based they're process, anonymous, right? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I think mm-hmm. I think it's great, and, and in a way, it's almost more legit or or or, yes. or, or more sort of um, authentic, I guess. If if you know, if it's not someone that you've already heard of, uh, or that it's not like a usual suspect, um, <laughs> you know, like someone who's already been recognized enough. It it does sound like uh, she's doing great work. What I always like about the MacArthur's is that the people are just doing their work, minding their own business, and then they sort of get tapped by a little, which is really nice. All right, I have a little round robin of some, you know, culture um, stories I want you all to respond to. The first, speaking of Mexican culture, um, (laughs) Barbie has come up with a Dio 
Dia de Muertes, or Day oh. of the Dead Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, is this cultural appropriation, Marcella, or is this respectful tribute? Yeah, it was cultural appropriation, <laughs> even though I read somewhere, I, I reacted very strongly against the Barbie, you know, the Day of the Dead, the other Muertos Barbie. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just like it just rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, this has gone too far. This needs to stop. Yeah. And then I read um, somewhere, I think the creator or the designer. Javier Miebe, yes. 34, drew from his Mexican heritage and yes. his personal experiences. And then I felt bad because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. But but now, I mean, I think there are certain things that I think the reason why because Barbie is such a. Um, you know, a commercialized product and such a Very symbol so. of like, you know, whiteness and this, and even though they've tried to, and I say this as someone who grew up in Mexico, totally obsessed with Barbies. Yeah. And like, I always wanted the, the latest one and my sisters and I would fight, you know, for them. Um, but it's just, I think it just went too far there. Uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to, we, we we seem to be in the middle of a sort of wave. I, I, I'm sure Adriana, you 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 agree with this that people are obsessed with Day of the Dead and the Other Muertos, and, mm. and I think it's because of the mm-hmm. movie. Um, yes, gosh, which I'm blinking on right the, now. The animated movie, with, yes. yes, which I cannot. Coco, I Coco thank yeah, you. Yes. yes, Coco. But even before Coco, there was like this sort of. Um, you know, growing obsession with the the other mortis, and it was sort of discovered here, and it jumped the mainstream, and, and next thing you know, it's everywhere. And so, now I think this has gone too far, uh, okay. in my opinion. Uh, Adriana, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little too much. Um, but what's interesting is I've read that that doll is sold out. Of course it's it 75. is. You know it is. Now it's come a, on. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> she's pretty. I mean, she's $75 and it's no way to be what? found. Wait, what? $75? Oh, Barbies are expensive. Where you been? What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's $75. Yes. Uh, and it, what? And it's sold out, but I, I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion, too, that Dia de los Muertos has become like a little too commercial. Mm, and, yeah. Mm. You know, I, I like it when it's, you know, truly honoring the departed and, yes. uh, you know, yes. making it a little more sacred. So. Well, I think the people who are concerned about cultural appropriation, you know, probably have a more than a, a, a good reason for it because I'm half paying attention. So before I really knew what it was about, I thought it was like, you know, a holiday where you just ate food. I mean, I really did not have a clue this about the I cultural love, connection. This is why I love the movie Coco because <laughs> right, they exactly, really did a good exactly, job explaining exactly. sort of like the connection to the death and like, I mean, growing up in Mexico, like I, I, people would actually do the altars, you know, yes. to their deaths and it's actually a beautiful tradition. Yeah. If you actually haven't been, the Harbor Museum does a very, oh. very um, cool Day of the Day celebration and they've done it for years. Like it was one of the first events I heard about when I first moved here wow. a lot of years okay. ago. But they do it and the, the Peabody, um, the Harbor Peabody Museum, is that what it's called? Yes. They do a celebration and they do the altars and you know the history and it's very authentic. So, well, Maybe some good go. will come from it and we can get past the commerce yeah. and get any, but that usually go. doesn't work that way. Anyway, I also want to turn our attention to um, a this fusion genre of music uh, called Trap Corridos. Oh, it's a Mexican folk ballad with trap music. Now, that's probably confusing everybody who's listening. But first, let me get an excerpt from Lolo Felix, and they're called the Trap Corrido Group by... Um, Arsenal Effecto Effectivo. So let's uh, let's listen and then I'll have you guys weigh in. Trap corridos.
Well, Adriana, it sounds good. Um, <laughs> is this <laughs> another situation where we're we're stepping too far, or is it just an, sort of an interesting fusion? I think it's just an evolution. Um, like corridos have been popular for generations and generations, and we saw, like in the in the '90s, there were a lot of corridos that came out, sort of about the drug trade, and they were sometimes dealt with a little bit more urban themes. So I don't really see this as something new. And even after the sh- mass shooting in El Paso, oh my um, God, was, yes, there was a the foot, some footage of yes, yeah, some mm. some community members had just yes. written one kind wow. of on the fly, and they were singing it. Wow, so, that was beautiful, uh, it, beautiful. Mm-hmm, it wasn't in this style, but I mean, you know, they just. They exist. It's something that's part of the culture, and mm-hmm. it's not going to go away. Hmm. Marcella? Yeah, I agree. It's sort of like, it, it, feel, it really feels organic because it, it's like a fusion between kind of like old and new, but corridos are just so, so culturally rich and powerful. I, I recently actually introduced some of my colleagues to corridos but even before this story came out. Like I was sitting there explaining to them what a corrido is and they were like totally mind blown because it's it's sort of like this style that is so authentic to Mexican culture and now you see this organic things popping up. I think mm. it, it's very nice but yes Adriana I remember that that video uh, it went viral. It, it, literally, it made me cry. It was mm. so moving and it was yes a member of the community who decided you know to honor the the El Paso shooting victims. This happened like a day or two um, after the the shooting. And then it sort of went viral. In, in I saw it on Twitter. And it was a beautiful corrido because it, it was, I mean, I'm just literally getting goosebumps uh, remembering it because it was, um, it was a very nice tribute. Oh, well, so, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's some good news. I will add this one thing. Um, Jerome Jarrell became the first Afro-Latino actor to be nominated for and win in an acting category uh, for the Emmys. And so, and he's a young man. He was uh, in the series for Netflix called When They See Us. So good news to end on. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Marcella Garcia is an editorial writer for the Boston Globe. Adriana Maestas is a Southern California-based freelance writer covering Latino politics. Coming up, there are few artists like jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, whose broad and deep contributions to music are impossible to quantify. Davis's lifelong innovation to the jazz genre has influenced generations of musicians, and new artists continue to take inspiration. His life and boundary-pushing career are the subject of a new documentary, Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. You're listening to So What by Miles Davis from his 1959 album, Kind of Blue. 
the best-selling jazz album of all time. Jazz trumpeter Miles Davis constantly defied convention and reinvented the genre that sought to define him narrowly. The jazz giant, who many describe as the very embodiment of cool, is the subject of a new documentary tracing the winding course of his life and career, and including interviews with artists Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, and Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, reflecting on Davis's expansive legacy. Joining me now from the NPR studios in New York to discuss Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, Stanley Nelson, the director and producer of the documentary. Stanley is an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker and a 2002 MacArthur Fellow. Hello, Stanley. Hi, how are you? I'm great, and I'm so happy to have you. Joining me here in the studio, Leon Lee Dorsey, a composer, arranger, and assistant professor of jazz composition at Berklee College of Music. Leon is also a double bassist who has performed with musicians such as Lionel Hampton, Art Blakey, and Cassandra Wilson. Welcome, Leon. Thank you. Hello. Glad to have you as well. First, Stanley, what a fabulous film. Just What a fabulous film. Enjoyed it, enjoyed it, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I want to start with asking why Miles? What attracted you? You've done so many iconic folks. You could have done any other ones. But what was it about Miles Davis that made you want to tell this story? Well, I'm, I'm a real music lover and a real jazz lover, and I've used a lot of music in my films and kind of wanted to do a music film, a film just about music and, and jazz. And, and uh, you know, who better than Miles, uh, who, you know, changed music four or five times in his life, had a career that spanned, you know, five different decades, and uh, was also just an icon in so many other ways, you know, the way he dressed and, and acted and, and those other things, you know, he was just so different. So, you know, it was a real honor for me to be able to make this film about Miles. Professor Leon, tell me what about Miles has always uh, been impressive to you? An uh, artist like that, when I describe him in several of my classes, he's one of the iconic artists of the 20th century. I don't even think about labeling him exclusively as a jazz artist. I think when you talk about Bach, Ellington, Mozart, Prince, he's in that category of conversation of, you know, greatest artists of all time since music's been done. So for me, whether we can talk about the clothing, the different ensembles he had through the years, you know, how he changed from acoustic to electric, um, there's not enough that can be said about somebody like that. Well, close to the top of the film, uh, Stanley, you explain the title, which actually refers to a period of time, the birth of the cool, but also refers to what Professor Leon Dorsey just mentioned, which was about his coolness in general, just being cool as a character. Is that the reason why you you titled the film that, because of that whole embodiment of cool? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, in in some ways, you know, you got to T- call a film something. So, you know, <laughs> All right, Stanley. So, so there's, there's so many different things that we could have called it. You know, we were thinking about Sorcerer at one point. You know, there's, there's so many different things, but we felt that that was the one thing that embodied Miles, you know. You know, I mean, Miles... Whatever you think of him, you know, he, he go he's in the running as the coolest guy who ever lived. And so, you know, we just thought it was, it was a great title. All right. I want to play a clip from the film just so people can begin to understand why he's uh, so highly thought of by people like the professor and yourself and many, many others. This is Ashley Kahn on the origins of Birth of the Cool and how Miles began to change the tone of jazz. By the end of the 40s, they're working on a project together. It's called Birth of the Cool, the Nonettes, that would create a kind of melding of modern classical ideas with jazz. 
So one of the things that uh, you emphasize in the film that I have to say I'm not sure I was, in fact, I know I wasn't aware of. I mean, I knew he was a big name and I knew that he played really, really well. But the piece about the innovation that both of you have mentioned, I didn't understand that, nor did I understand that it kept happening over time. So speak a little bit about that, Stanley. And was that something that you knew about before you began this piece? Yeah, I mean, I, I did know that Miles had gone through the, these different periods and, and it kind of driven the different periods. It wasn't like Miles joined in something that was going on. You know, Miles reinvented uh, music and reinvented himself. Um, you know, Miles spans bebop. You know, he comes to New York in 44 and starts playing with Charlie Parker in the, in the foundations of bebop to, you know, uh, Bitches Brew in 1969, which is Miles uh, merging jazz with rock and kind of in- inventing the whole idea of fugit. So, you know, Miles went through all these incredible uh, periods, but, you know, it, he he always jumped in feet first. It was never, you know, hey, you know, I think I'll do a Bossa Nova album. No, <laughs> when Miles went for it, he went for it. He, you know, he kind of erased his past, and, and, and that was one of the things that was so different about Miles. One of the things that I appreciated in the film, Stanley and Professor Dorsey, I would imagine from an educator standpoint, you would too. His embrace of young people, I had no idea how young some of these now other icons that we know about, the Coltrane's and the Herbie Hancock's, how young they were when he embraced them into various groups and allowed them to sort of be themselves. You would probably knew that history, uh, Professor Dorsey. Well, in jazz, even though many people have went to universities, the idea of master apprenticeship, that's been around a long time. You can go through all the generations of artists. I think because Miles' career was so successful and so prolific over a long stretch of time, it was easier to identify, you know, the John Coltrane's, the Cannonball Adderley's, the Bill Evans, Herbie Hancock's, Tony Williams, and later people like Mike Stern and Marcus Miller and like that. But um, that's always went on. I mean, the fact that Miles was 19 with Charlie Parker is reflective of that idea itself. The other thing that I'm so glad you explained was just the whole iconic status of Kind of Blue. And just to say, as we did with leading into the piece, that it's still a best-selling jazz album. I mean, that is... And imagine how many other albums are out there, how much other work has been out there. And yet, that's the one. One of your interviewees, Stanley, said, even if you didn't like jazz, this was the thing that brought people into it, that he sort of attracted people who didn't really understand the genre or appreciate it. Yeah, Kind of Blue is, is just this kind of amazing masterpiece, you know, of an album. It's a, it's an album that that we all can understand and, and we all feel like, you know, uh, smarter because, because we do understand it. You know, the quote that you mentioned is from Jimmy Cobb, who's the last surviving member of that group, and, and he's just amazing. But, you know, Kind of Blue still, if there's a slow jazz week, it still rises to be the, the number one jazz album of the week, you know. Um, when we started the film, I remember... Uh, it was the number one jazz album in Spain that week. It's just this this thing. I, you know, you know that it will last the test of time. I have no doubt that in a hundred years, people will still listen to Kind of Blue. That's my guest, Stanley Nelson. He's a director and producer of the documentary Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. So here's Joshua Redman, who uh, jazz folks will know is a jazz artist in and of himself with some status, discussing the iconic status of Kind of Blue. 
we can't even question the sacred texts that we have, right? Like, you know, I mean, why is the Bible the Bible? It's the Bible, you know? I mean, why is kind of blue kind of blue? It's kind of, it's kind of blue, like, it, it, it just is, and, and, and it changed the sound of jazz. One of the things that I liked about this film, and that's, again, from Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool, Stanley Nelson's documentary, is that you leave us time to hear the music. And so for someone like me, again, a kind of a vague appreciation for him, but I don't really know all the work, that was very helpful. And I'm wondering if you're hearing back from folks now, Stanley, that, you know, they could put a face on the piece of music, if you will, because as I listened to some of it, I was like, oh, wow, so that Miles did that piece. I wasn't aware that I, I even knew that in some instances. Yeah, one of my favorite things is people t- tell me that that they watch the film with their phone out and Shazam the, the <laughs> tunes as they go through, so they know know what the tune tunes are. That's really gratifying. But you know, I, I think one of the things we really wanted to do was to, in some places in the film, you know, let the music live and and you know let you hear the music. And that's not an easy thing to do because you know you don't want to stop the film and say, okay, here's the music, and and you know turn the film in, into radio. And so, you know, how do you how do you have the music continue to, to tell the story and continue to uh, move the story forward, but to hear the music? And, and that was something that we we spent a lot of time trying to figure out. Mm. Professor Leon Dorsey of the Berkeley College of Music, how do you feel when you hear Miles Davis? Because there are some in the film who do a good job of talking about it. But as a person like yourself who studied and admired his work, what do you emotionally get from it? Well, one of the things I tell my kids, because... Uh, I write a C minor 7 on the board, and I tell them, the reason you love Aretha Franklin or Miles or any of the great artists is not because of the chords, progressions, even the words. It's uh, what all the mechanics that music sits on, the rhythms and the harmony and the melodies, it sits on the spirituality internally that we have. That's what makes us love Miles, that he was able to tap into that on a rare level that we don't really see in many generations. That's why you only name three or four people in a century who are able, had that capability, a Louis Armstrong, a Charlie Parker, obviously Miles, because the music is so amazing. He had so many phenomenal sidemen. It's easy to kind of get caught up on that level and really not understand. But it was mentioned in the film, which I really love, even when I had met George of Arkham before he passed. I had his grandson in my class at the University of Pittsburgh, mm. and he's the one to sign Miles to Columbia. Mm. And he was he really had an amazing amount of stories about that period and all. And, and you heard him, he, you know, he gave Miles some criteria <laughs> for getting the record deal, which I'm sure, yes, you know, was kind of mandatory. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, with that long history, you can really, the other kind of non-tangible component about music is um, with somebody like Miles, it's just, that's a conversation in itself. And one of the I wanted to add was one of the things that, that happens for Miles when he signs with Columbia and George Avakian is, you know, he's signed to a contract, so he, he's getting paid as a salary, you know, not by cu- having to come in and cut sides. And so it gives Miles the rare opportunity for, for a jazz musician to think. You know, mm. he can think about what he wants to do. He doesn't ha- have to, you know, gig er- every single night. He doesn't have to just constantly record. He can say, you know, I want to do some uh, sketches of Spain, you know, or I want to do Porgy and Bess and, and can do these kind of big projects that, that were really out of the reach of, of, of so many people be- because of economics. Hmm. 
I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson and Berklee College of Music jazz composition professor Leon Lee Dorsey. We're discussing Stanley's newest film, Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool, chronicling the life and career of the legendary jazz musician Miles Davis. Here is a clip from the film uh, that I enjoyed, which other people, now that Professor Dorsey has talked about how the emotional content for him of Miles's work, here are some descriptions of Miles Davis's talent and genius from Farrah Griffin and Herbie Hancock. I want to feel the way Miles sounds. Miles had a way of playing that sounded like a like a stones skipping across a pond. He just touched on the waves. I thought that was so beautiful, and um, what I have to say about it is uh, the film is that if I just went with you know, just all the music and the the iconic status and the genius and the talent and all that is absolutely something that he did and he should be honored for, I probably feel real comfortable. But you also delved into his issues, and he had a lot of personal life issues along the way. And I think one of the reasons that I never took time to delve into his work, because I couldn't get past the abuse I knew happened between Miles and many of his wives. He had three wives and many other girlfriends during the time, and it was also always a struggle. Also struggled with drugs off and on uh, throughout his, his time. So that piece of his life, Stanley, I think you felt had to be a piece of this so that you understood you know, where the music came from, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important part of, of who Miles was. And, and you know, also, the, you know, people know about it, you know. We would have been raked over the coals <laughs> if we tried to ignore it. Um, but I, I think, it's again, it, it's what makes Miles um, such a great character because he's so complicated, you know. I mean, one of our central questions in making this film was, you know, how does a, a man who was so rough and so hard to get along with and, and so many times abusive could make such beautiful music and, and could make this beautiful music over and over again? So, you know, I, I think, you know, a complicated character helps make a more complicated film. This is uh, Frances Taylor Davis from the film, one of Miles Davis's three wives, and some would argue that his favorite, describing Miles's abuse towards her. I was with Miles at Birdland one evening, and Quincy Jones was there. When we got home that night, I just mentioned to Miles that Quincy Jones is handsome. And before I knew it, it was so fast. And I saw stars, I was on the floor. It was the most unbelievable thing that ever happened to me because I'd never been hit in my life. That was the first. And it wasn't going to be the last. Ooh, that just took me out, I have to say. All the instances in the film, but um, it really did give me a, a holistic view of who he was. Many people, Professor Leon Lee Dorsey, described him as a genius. Would you? That That's not even a discussion, actually, with somebody like Miles. I mean, 
you could take any period, he still could have had that moniker without the long, illustrious career from Charlie Parker to the time of his passing. But I wanted to address a little bit what you just said. I know that's very hard, and I think because of Miles' longevity and, you know, multiple wives, but I mean, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, that's a very long list of men we could go through, actors in Hollywood who had complex personal lives. So Miles is not unique, makes no excuse for it. But one of the things I mentioned to my class is when you do that kind of soul-searching as an artist, waking up and cooking eggs and bacon in the morning is a very difficult thing to do because Mm. the demand that comes on you spiritually, emotionally, intellectually to, like, go into yourself and do any one period that he did, that's, again, no excuse for abuse on women. I hate that. But but you find with many prints, you know, this is consistent through history. I could go through a laundry list of classical artists, Franz Liszt and different people who they're off the concert hall antics was as well known as the music they were be known for. A lot of people would describe that uh, born out of depression, which I think was discussed a bit in the film, Stanley, about his trying to cope with, you know, it's a lot of insecurities. And again, you know, I'm not making an excuse for that. But it's interesting that for some people, that's how it plays out. And it did for him throughout his life. One of the great quotes for me in the film is is, is Tammy Canoodle, one of the Mm. uh, uh, historians that we interviewed in the film, says, you know, one of the things that music may have allowed him to do was to show uh, a side of himself, uh, that kind of soft, you know, inner side that he felt at least that he could not show in in, in the world and the, to the outside world. So uh, I think that's that's important. Know. Stanley, was there anything in the doing of this film that surprised you that you were unaware of about Miles? Um, you know, there, there was just so much, and there, there's so much in, in the film. I think one of the things that's really important when you talk about Miles' inner life and, and story is that, you know, Miles was born in East St. Louis in 1926. His father was a dentist. Miles grew up rich, you know, for the African-American community at that point. You know, they had a, a house in East St. Louis and a farm outside of East St. Louis where Miles had horses that he rode and, and stuff. And, and so there, there's always this kind of push and pull with Miles, you know, where he kind of the prince, you know, in his household and, and you know, in his neighborhood. But, you know, um, he's subjected to the racism that, that any uh, black person will be subjected to in that period of time. You know, um, he takes a beating from the police, you know, r- right after a, a kind of blue comes out, basically for, for no reason, just for being outside a club when his name is in lights, you know, right above his head. So I think uh, in some ways the things, you know, start to add up of who Miles was and, and, and why Miles might have been the, the way he was. His parents had a very abusive relationship, and, you know, we, we talk about that. Um, again, as you all have said, you know, so eloquently, you know, there's no excusing, you know, that. I mean, we all, you know, react to stimuli in a different way, but that's the way Miles reacted to mm. it. Anything that surprised you, Professor Dorsey? No, I mean, I know so much about Miles. I studied bass for many years as a protege of um, Ron Carter. Um, who played with Miles, we should who say. played with Miles mm-hmm. throughout most of the 1960s. Mm. You have constant, when you're in a classroom with somebody like that or a private lesson, you endless amount of questions you could ask just about the music. You don't even really get into the other side of it. But like I said, you could make 50 films on Miles. That's mm. kind of individual he was. That's just from an artistic standpoint. I think when I discuss music um, in the history classes, when you understand something like Miles, Armstrong, Ellington, 
obviously all of them very complex, but I think you can never talk about things in a vacuum. I like how the film presented, you know, the context politically and socially, racially. You can't really try to say, well, this artist was fabulous, but they did this, this, and this. And you go like, well, what was the conditions of the time? You know, he's born in the 1920s. He's born virtually on the mm-hmm. heels of the uh, Depression, right after World War One, a decade removed from World War Two. Um, and when you really look at America, then you look at what the black community went through in those time periods. Again, doesn't excuse any of his actions, but some of his just general demeanor and psychological state, probably not that uncommon for people that would have been born of that generation. Stanley, finally, what do you want people to take away? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in folks who are not necessarily jazz aficionados, but people, you know, how should they approach the film understanding that Miles was, as Professor Dorsey said earlier, actually bigger than the jazz genre that for which he is most closely associated? Well, I think one of the things that I, I just want to make sure sure I, I mention is that, you know, the the film is kind of narrated by Miles. So, um, you know, we took his autobiography and, and some other uh, interviews that he did. And we have an actor, Carl Lumley, who voices Miles, you know, in, in Miles' rasp, you know. And, and so he does know, a good that, job. That, yeah, he, he does an incredible <laughs> yeah. job of, 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 of being Miles. So, you know, in, in that way, we, we felt that we could get some insight, you know, into Miles, um, you know, and, and Miles kind of reflects on the the various incidents in his life, you know, that instead of it, it being, you know, historians constantly talking, uh, there's a lot of people who knew Miles and worked with Miles, and then Miles himself talking about his life, and, and, and that, I feel, is really important. All right. Well, once again, Stanley Nelson, you've knocked it out of the park. People should know that you have three primetime Emmy Awards, your MacArthur Genius Award winner, National Humanities Medal. I mean, you know how to make a film. So that's important for people to know. So I thank you for joining me. Thank you. And same with you, Professor Leon uh, Dorsey. I, I thank you for joining me as well. Thank you. Stanley Nelson is the director and producer of Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, and Leon Lee Dorsey is a jazz bassist, composer, arranger, and assistant professor of jazz composition at Berklee College of Music. Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool is playing now at Landmark's Kendall Square Cinema until October 3rd and will be featured next year on PBS's American Masters. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our engineer is John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.